0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor, and you're listening to Money Talks. On this show... The ultra-conservative website Breitbart News sets its sights on Europe.
2: It may seem a little odd to use the word professional, but Breitbart would bring a professionalization to right-wing media in France and Germany, that could really lend new force to those movements.
3: How long will we have capital without borders? We don't want the hot money, but we do want long-term finance to continue. And we need to be sure that it's the second bit that's preserved and we don't have to worry about the first bit.
1: And finally, as the Asian Development Bank turns 50, we consider its role in a changing Asia.
0: They are beginning to ask, you know, what do they have to do in order to make sure that they remain the, the prime development bank in Asia?
1: But first, the fortunes of the conservative website Breitbart News have risen with those of Donald Trump. Its influence in American politics continues to grow. Last month, Mr Trump announced Breitbart's chairman, Stephen Bannon, would be his chief strategist. And now the hard-right website is venturing across the Atlantic, into France and Germany. Here with me to discuss its expansion is our correspondent Elizabeth Winkler. Elizabeth, just how big is Breitbart in the U.S.?
2: Breitbart on November 19th announced that it had reached 45 million unique visitors in the last 31 days. That's modest compared to traditional media outlets, but it has grown with the Brexit campaign. It's grown with the Trump campaign. Its profile is rising, especially on social media between May 13th and June 13th of this year, for instance, it had the highest number of social media interactions for political content in in English. So it beat out The Wall Street Journal, it beat out CNN, it beat out The Guardian. Its closest rival, The Huffington Post, a liberal outlet, was behind by 2 million clicks and shares.
1: You mentioned the Brexit campaign. So France and Germany aren't Breitbart's first ventures overseas.
2: No, Breitbart has Breitbart Jerusalem. And in 2014, it launched Breitbart London, Its fortunes there have risen with the Brexit campaign. So on June 23rd, it was actually, um, it saw the most number of readers that it had seen in total up to that point.
1: And why France and Germany?
2: France and Germany have huge elections coming up next year. And Breitbart's explicit aim is to influence those elections in favor of far-right candidates um, and far-right parties. So that's Front National in France and Alternative for Deutschland in Germany. They're trying to do what they did in Britain with Brexit and in the U.S. with Donald Trump, which is to ally themselves with these, with these ethnic nationalist, populist, anti-immigrant, anti-EU parties and help them come to power.
1: But isn't there a bit of a contradiction here? I mean, they, they are, as you say, a nationalist website. Yet here they are internationalizing.
2: Yes, they're they're globalizing anti-globalization, which seems a bit peculiar at first. But they have a very clear business model, which is that they move into markets where they see rising anti-immigrant, anti-EU sentiment, anti-globalization sentiment, and they plug into that market. They plug especially into an air er- into areas where. There is an existing opposition party that they can align themselves with and that gives them credibility. The party can use their material and they sort of piggyback off that party and draw this fragmented nationalist movement together onto an organized Internet platform.
1: And and are those opposition parties, the Front National in France and Alternative for Deutschland in, in Germany, are they welcoming Breitbart?
2: They are. They are very much welcoming Breitbart. They have said explicitly that, that they would see Breitbart as an ally. That they welcome that voice. There is no Breitbart equivalent right now in France and Germany. There are small right wing publications, Valeur Actuelle in France and Junge Freiheit in Germany, and there are a lot of little blogs and message boards. And websites that have cropped up as these right wing movements have surged, but they don't have an organized Internet presence. They don't have the slick social media campaigns, especially of Breitbart. And Facebook was crucial to Breitbart's success. In the U.S. and Britain. So it may seem a little odd to use the word professional, but Breitbart would bring a professionalization to right-wing media in France and Germany that could really um, lend new force to those movements.
1: Germany has quite strict hate speech laws, doesn't it? I mean, is that a problem for Breitbart?
2: Breitbart will have to tread more carefully in Germany. You know, it can't run headlines like Bill Kristol, Renegade Jew, which is a which is a headline it ran um, this year and got, you know, that caused quite a bit of controversy. Germany, for obvious reasons, is very sensitive about anti-Semitic speech. So it'll have to tread more carefully, but it'll still have enormous scope to sort of flan the flames of anti-immigrant sentiment, anti-EU sentiment and so forth.
1: you Describing it as an ideological movement, really. But is it also a business? Does it hope to make money? Does it make money?
2: It's not clear that it makes money. It has not released its revenue figures. Analysts don't think it can really be sustaining itself off of its ad revenue alone. Breitbart is financed by private backers. The most notable among those is Robert Mercer, a hedge fund billionaire who was also one of the single biggest donors to Donald Trump's campaign. He donated $10 million to Breitbart a few years back, and there's no updates on, you know, what donations look like, how it's being financed. By the looks of things, Breitbart is principally a political tool. It may have commercial aims in the long run, but right now it's an ideological tool.
1: What about advertising and advertisers? Do they tend to shun it?
2: Yes. So there has been a movement to boycott Breitbart. Last week, Kellogg's, most notably the the cereal maker, pulled its ads from the website, as did a number of other firms. And in Germany, BMW, Deutsche Telekom have also pulled their ads, and Breitbart has responded in kind by suggesting that its readers dump Kellogg's and boycott Kellogg's back. But many advertisers have chosen to stay, and I think they'll feel torn because their interests are commercial. So do they stay and um, enjoy the reach of those consumers, or do they take a sort of an ethical position on this?
1: Elizabeth Winkler, thank you very much. Thank you. What do you think? Could Breitbart expand its business? Or will its hard-right polemics keep advertisers at bay over the long term? Let us know. You can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio, or you can always send an email to radio at economist.com. Next, Whatever the backlash against globalisation, many economists have long argued that there's no way to turn the clock back. But that may not be true of global financial flows, which have actually experienced contraction. Philip Coggan, our Buttonwood columnist, is with me now. Philip, you're writing this week about financial deglobalization. What exactly does that mean?
3: It means that money is flowing less fast across borders than we thought before. It seemed ever since the 1980s that the only way was up, that more and more money was trading faster and faster. But the latest evidence is from a survey of foreign exchange markets that the Bank for International Settlements conducts every three years. For the first time really since the 90s, the flows have dropped a bit, admittedly from 5.4 trillion a day to 5.1 trillion a day. But still, that's disguises within that, the spot market, which is the instant trading, is down 19% over the last three years. And that is on top of other indications that the flows have stopped. So the amount of cross-border bank loans is still well down on its level in uh, 2007. The total flows of capital markets, figures from McKinsey shows, uh, are down about 6% from uh, 2007. It's no longer a temporary thing that you can just put down to the crisis. It seems somehow more permanent. Um, And what's causing it? There seem to be a combination of factors. So first of all, banks are more heavily regulated than they were before the crisis. They need to put more capital up when they trade. Uh, And so they're less willing to commit capital to trading. They're less willing to lend money, it seems, to hedge funds. Hedge funds have seen a big decline in their FX activity. And the third issue is that, Trade itself has slowed, so there was a huge rise in uh, trade of goods and services in the early 2000s as China came into the market. Since 2008, trade has been growing less rapidly than the economy itself. And one of the factors may be that China is producing more of the goods within its own boundaries rather than importing components and re-exporting the finished goods. But it's quite hard to tell exactly what's going on. But the overall effect is that markets are becoming less globalised. The flows across borders will potentially be less destabilising. So there is a, a good side to it because in the past we've seen Asia in the 1990s, for example, hot money rush into economy, drive up the exchange rate, make the country uncompetitive, and then rush out again, causing a financial crisis. But is the contraction also affecting what you might call cold money, long-term
1: flows, foreign direct investment, for example?
3: Foreign direct investment has held up a lot better than the other stuff, and the foreign direct investment is the bit you like. That's people building factories within your economy, because that money tends to stay. It tends to be used to employ people. So you really want as much of the foreign direct investment as you can get, and as little of the hot money flowing into your bank deposits or your short-term flows, where they're only really attracted by either a high interest rate or the prospect that your currency is going up. And the danger with that is it it goes out as quickly as it comes in.
1: So all in all, it sounds as if deglobalization in the financial world is, is not something we should be too worried about.
3: It's only a worry if it's a symptom of something more broader, that countries are less willing to trade with each other and indeed to finance each other's banks. So we saw within the euro crisis, for example, the long tradition of Europe being regarded as one country where France would lend to Italy and Italy would lend to Poland. That went backwards. And now those flows are really only uh, sustained at the central banking level. So the Bundesbank is lending money to the Bank of Italy. That's a worry, because if the EU isn't functioning as a a single capital market, then arguably, it's not a very efficient currency union at all. We don't want the hot money, but we do want long term finance to continue. And we need to be sure that it's the second bit that's preserved. And we don't have to worry about the first bit. Philip Coggan, Cottonwood. Thank you very much. Thanks.
1: Finally now, the Asian Development Bank, or ADB, turns 50 next week. In all those years, no borrower has ever defaulted on a loan from the ADB, which can boast of many other successes. It's had a small but influential role in the spectacular growth of economies in Taiwan, South Korea, and of course China. But it now faces what many see as a rival, the China-led Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, or AIIB, which started operations this year. On the line from Shanghai is our Asia economics editor, Simon Rabinovich, who's just been in Manila to meet the ADB. Is facing a new rival how the ADB sees its place in the world now?
0: They're very honest in saying that the launch of the Chinese-led bank, the AIB, has led to to some soul-searching at ADB about you know what it needs to do to remain relevant within Asia. You know Certainly if you look at news coverage over the last year or so, uh, you would think that the Chinese bank was much bigger and doing much more already than ADB is. That's not true. In fact, ADB is still much the bigger bank. It has 3,000 employees compared to about 50 for the Chinese-led bank. It lends about $20 billion a year. That That's the target right now. It's at 16 or 17, uh, whereas the Chinese-led bank is only doing about $1 or $2 billion a year. Plus, it has the 50 years of track record, so it certainly has the experience and the history behind it, but looking ahead, clearly the AIIB is going to be a big challenger, so they are beginning to ask, you know, what do they have to do in order to make sure that they remain the the prime development bank in Asia.
1: Now, just as last year there were concerns in some quarters that the AIIB was going to be a a Chinese vehicle, 50 years ago I think there were concerns that the ADB would be a Japanese vehicle and Japan still dominates the bank, doesn't it?
0: That's right, you're absolutely right about the history. Initially, the Americans, who were at that time the preeminent power in Asia, wondered really what the point was of having a regional development bank in, in Asia. And so it, it wasn't so much a concern of Japanese dominance, but just a question about, you know, what actually was the point of having this thing. But the Japanese were able to prevail and get American support and they launched it. Uh, and And they talk about its decision making as being very consensual, but throughout its fifty years of history, there has always been a Japanese in the seat of president, um, and so it is seen as being a, a japanese led and, and therefore dominated institution, you know much the same way as the World Bank has always been led by an American. Critics would say you need to have more fundamental institutional reform in order to allow other countries to to feel like they can actually be more of a stakeholder in the process so clearly, there is. You know need for change, uh, and the Chinese launch of, of the AIB is the kind of thing that might light a little bit of fire under the ADB to, to bring about that change. Uh, but it'll be at least five years away because they've, they've just reelected NACO, the current president, for another five-year term.
1: What other ways might the AIIB change the ADB? I mean, one possibility, I suppose, is that it lends less to infrastructure and more to some of the other areas it finances.
0: The vast majority of its lending goes to infrastructure, about 70%. That's probably going to continue. I mean, the number might go a little bit down, but generally speaking, loans to infrastructure are large loans, uh, whereas loans to education or healthcare, which are focuses that the ADB wants to develop, uh, tend to be a little bit smaller. Um, you know, a second thing that ADB is trying to do is, is basically to speed things up. And this is one of the things that the Chinese led bank has been getting a lot of credit for is that because of the way that it's structured itself, it should be able to make decisions very quickly about loan dispersal, whereas ADB historically has been seen as being excessively bureaucratic, really a a little bit too slow. So they've reviewed their processes and they're trying to come up with ways to make that faster without compromising risk control. And, and just finally, they're also trying to use their balance sheet a little bit more aggressively. So everybody looks to the Chinese bank as being one that will you know, maybe have more money, more capital, and therefore will, will be able to do more. But as you said in the intro, ADB has you know an almost impeccable record historically in terms of lending. There's, there's been no sovereign defaults that it's ever experienced. And so what it's doing now is it's using its existing assets and, and beginning to leverage the money a little bit more, uh, and so therefore trying to be able to expand the amount that it can lend in the future.
1: Simon Rubinovich, Asia Economics Editor, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about the topics discussed in this show, pick up the latest issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. And do join us again next time. In London, this is The Economist.